Arise, ye workers from your slumber. Arise, ye prisoners of want. That's right. For reason in revolt now thunder. Chains of hatred, greed, and fear. Ha <laughs> ha! Away with all your superstitions. Serve our masses. Arise, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition. Just to win the prize. So, comrades, come on and rally. Then the last fight, let us face. The international unites the whole darn human race. So Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan. Back as always with Luke Savage here. Hi, guys. It's, uh, you know, as we kind of watched uh, this evening's movie, uh, the world is teetering on the brink of nuclear <laughs> war, quite possibly. Um, According to Donald Trump, yeah. uh, in between uh, holes at the golf course, yeah. uh, he said that, folks, North Korea's got to cut it out or else we're going to unleash gonna strike fire a, and fury. It's going to be a bigger attack than anyone's ever seen, more spectacular, <laughs> the, the best nuclear war. Uh, I have to say, like everyone, I was a little uh, upset and perturbed by it when I saw it out of context on Twitter, all these quotes, and saw everyone tweeting about how we're all going to die. But then when I saw that he said this to the media during a press scrum at a golf course, I started to calm down a little and realize, oh, yeah, this is this is just what Trump does when he's asked about North Korea while he's golfing by the media. I mean, after, after watching last night's episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's a, a sad state of affairs when the president of the United States is saber-rattling another country with nuclear war, and I and to comfort myself, I have to dismiss it as, oh, this is just what Trump does. Well, I don't know. What I, what I do know is that uh, whether we're facing nuclear war or not, doing Michael and us is, is what I would want to do on the eve of the apocalypse. So I'm glad I'm yeah. glad we're here. And fundamentally, uh, I think we do this podcast for the troops. <laughs> so <laughs> so that they have entertainment. Um, what else has been happening in the world? Uh, I saw Dunkirk. Not, not exactly a, a geopolitical event, but... Uh, Did you enjoy it? I, I've talked about Christopher Nolan on the prestigious Important Cinema Club podcast. I know you're not a fan. Of Christopher uh, Nolan, yeah. not really. Well, you and I have, in fact, uh, ridiculed him on this very podcast. Yeah. Uh, talking about The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, what did you think of Dunkirk? Well, I mean, I have nicer things to say about it than The Dark Knight Rises, but, I mean, in a way, that's because the bar has become so low for me when I see a movie in theaters um i mean i see i guess i see a lot of movies in theaters every year but they're usually most of them are pretty old you know they're like classic or art cinema so you know i don't see a lot of the big blockbusters and Mm. this one i think just by virtue of you know it has like real actors and it's not all cgi'd and stuff um yeah it goes to show you how much you appreciate it when you see like a big crowd scene on a beach that actually is a crowd yeah and of course it's like it's competently made i think they're the storytelling and it's kind of I'm not sure how well the, like, different timelines, you know, really works at, at the end of the day. Um, They're not all the same amount of time. No. Yeah. Um, but um, it's it was enjoyable enough. I mean, it's basically like Tory porn, as uh, editor of The Baffler put it in his piece on Christopher Nolan. Well, my problem watching it is I saw, you know, the greatest generation up there on the screen fighting, <laughs> risking their lives for freedom. And, and you I, thought, my I, generation yeah. sitting around, we're, we're looking at our smartphones, we're, uh, we're wondering why our gender degrees yeah. won't buy lattes. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyways, we're playing video reading games. Reading artisanal kale. In our, in our safe spaces. Yeah. Let me tell you what isn't a safe <laughs> space. The beaches of Dunkirk. That's right. Where the facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah. I was actually a little surprised to see Dunkirk come out because like World War II nostalgia seems like such a like such a 90s thing. Well, I'm a little puzzled as to why Christopher Nolan, like what the agenda is behind a movie, like making a movie like that now. I mean, it's been referred to as kind of a Brexit movie. It seems like a bit of a stretch. Yeah. It's a Brexit movie because it's kind of like a celebration of old England and it has a lot of white people in it. Yes, I like suppose. That. I think, you know, in some ways the film avoided jingoism in ways that I wouldn't expect. Not, I mean, the whole film is kind of jingoistic in a way, but I mean... There were moments where it could have been more so. Um, well, he makes a, a choice not to name the enemy and not mm. to endow any of the characters with kind of personalities, really. Yeah. And, and to have it just be kind of like present tense. And I think it's interesting that the most obvious kind of well-known thing from Dunkirk, which is Winston Churchill's Fight Them on the Beaches speech, pre it's present in the film, but you don't hear Churchill. It's read by one of the soldiers who's... Uh, return, like he reads from a newspaper where it's been printed and that's you know that's an interesting touch which i think you know could easily not have uh, been included so i mean i don't know i'm not i i don't think i'll ever need to see it again but i mean i could have hated it given given kind of its status as a <laughs> what a, what a curmudgeon as you one are. of the leading blockbusters this year which will presumably win lots of oscars and stuff i i, I expected <laughs> to hate it a lot more <laughs> okay well the experience uh, of seeing it in the theater was was perfectly uh, passable and and not, you know, unpleasant. So. All right. Uh, today, Luke and I watched the original Dunkirk, uh, Sergei Eisenstein's <laughs> The Battleship Potemkin from 1925, one of the grand totems of cinema. And I hadn't seen it, I think, since I was in high school. Yeah, I hadn't seen it since maybe first or second year film class. They might have shown it in film class, and it's entirely possible that I didn't attend that week because I'd already seen it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you were one of those. Yeah, I was one of those. I remember in grade 12 renting it from the library and basically crossing it off a checklist and mm -hmm. thinking that was okay, mm -hmm. but never really feeling a lot of passion. Right. Like, Eisenstein is one of those guys, I think, a lot of people who are into film will will agree that he's they think of him as a museum piece more than right. a, li a living right. thing i think i think you know the way to really appreciate eisenstein is like once you have more of an appreciation of the i don't know the historical kind of context, the historical context yeah. of it because otherwise yeah it does sort of just seem like an anachronistic piece well i gotta say i really enjoyed this movie it was very watching exciting it wasn't it yeah, and I before we watched the movie, I was reading the the great movies review by I guess nobody's by idea by Leonard Maltin, uh, uh, Roger Ebert, All right. uh, nobody <laughs> nobody's idea of a Marxist film critic, right. but uh, he said that the effect of the movie is not divorceable from the context, and he thought that he was writing this review in the late nineties. He said watching it in a time of peace and prosperity it feels more like a curio 
But he imagined that if he'd shown this movie in China around the time of Tiananmen Square, it probably would have riled people up. Yeah. Like, it's the, it's the kind of movie that it, mm-hmm. when times are bad, yeah. pe- people can get invested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying we're exactly in Tiananmen Square right now, but we're not in the late 90s anymore. So yeah. I, de- I think I felt it more felt of a connection. It has more of an effect now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So... You know, for people unfamiliar with the film, it's about, um, it's kind of a, a dramatized, stylized version of a mutiny that took place as part of kind of a, a large wave of social unrest in the Russian working class in 1905 in the military, uh, you know, in the in the Navy, you know, among uh, farmers and, and workers too. And this unrest uh, produced a new constitution or a new set of um, constitutional arrangements and 1906, which basically gave Russia a primitive version of what many other European countries had had for decades or even in some respect centuries. It created a a, a Duma, which was uh, partly appointed by the Tsar, which had some limited constitutional powers. But I mean, the thing to know about Russia in this period is that even with all of this social unrest, even with all of this deprivation, uh, the most this kind of uh, quarter revolution of 1905 could do was create like an extremely primitive kind of proto-liberal constitution where there was very limited you know popular government or so i mean what's called responsible government which we got in canada you know before confederation they didn't even really have in russia after this wave of social unrest so the film you know um i guess we could say its politics are not subtle out of curiosity about the history of the film uh, I don't know much about this history. Uh, the movie ends on a note of suggesting, okay, this revolution only goes so far, but mm. uh, La Résistance lives on right. in the hearts of men everywhere. Right. Did this historical circumstance create a momentum or oh, yeah, uh, set a precedent? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the despite the Tsar retaining power, it was a it was a loss of face and a loss of um, you know power for the Tsar, and it showed that I guess in the in the smallest way possible popular uprisings could actually um, achieve limited concessions from from power so i mean certainly you know this film made in 1925 on i guess the the 20th anniversary was you know coming not too long after coming less than a decade after the russian revolution the real russian revolution you know obviously eisenstein and and the revolutionaries kind of um you know had a view of this event as kind of being foundational and they wanted people to mm-hmm. think of it as foundational as well yeah the film was commissioned as part of a year-long celebration by the soviet union of the 20th anniversary of uh, the 1905 uprising actually interestingly what we see in this film was actually just supposed to be one part of the film. Originally, it was going to be an omnibus film of five different events from the 1905 uprising, but poor weather and uh, budgetary limitations right. led to Eisenstein scaling back. Right. Uh, this was Eisenstein's second feature-length film. Earlier the same year, he did Strike. I- oh, that's pretty famous, too, but I've never seen it. Yeah, that's one that I saw in, in right. film class as well. And... The early Eisenstein films of the 1920s, the strategy is no professional actors. The actors we see are from the social classes that they're representing. Uh, No emphasis on individual characters. But, you know, it's consistent with the Marxist idea that the revolution isn't going to come individually. It's going to come from the mass. I think one reason why I've never gravitated towards Eisenstein as a filmmaker is... 
these early films, these 1920s films are all macro, no micro. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's a little distancing. The most we get of kind of individual characters is in these kind of mon- these montages for, for which Eisenstein's very famous. So in the, in the famous Odessa step sequence, um, you know, you'll see things like a mother loses her child, which gets trampled, and then she, you know marches back up the steps holding the child's bloodied, you know, body uh, and begs the soldiers for help and not to shoot and then they shoot her. Um, but that's the closest we get to kind of in the individualized experience. The film, yeah, is very much about the, well, the, the revolutionary idea that, you know, the, the, the working class is a, is a kind of an organic mass that can be thought of, you know, holistically at least when it comes to taking revolutionary action. The first frame of the film is some text which reads, The spirit of revolution soared over the Russian land. A tremendous, mysterious process was taking place in countless hearts. The individual personality, having hardly had time to become conscious of itself, dissolved in the mass, and the mass itself became dissolved in the revolutionary Elan. Hmm. So that's really that idea in miniature. So the film opens on the battleship Potemkin, where the sailors, the workers, are in deplorable conditions. The aristocracy who run the ship uh, are feeding them rotten meat yeah, with, with maggots. maggots all over them. And they say, ah, this, this meat's good enough. Finally, an uprising happens. And just as the soldiers are about to shoot the captured soldiers, the, the, the mutineers, the mutineers, yeah. they something comes over all of them as a mass where they realize these mutineers are not the enemy. Is they're our comrades? Yeah, it's the officers that are the enemy. Yeah, and then they take over the ship, mm-hmm. and word of this uprising spreads to the shore. The leader of the uprising, I believe, dies. Yeah. And he, he becomes a martyr for the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, a uh, uh, couple of weeks pass of uh, glorious communism. <laughs> You're going to say it's not really communism. Well, it wasn't. I mean, just as a matter of historical... I mean, yeah, it's all... It's, you know it's all communism. <laughs> we, had this, we had this conversation <laughs> during the film, and just as a short digression, I was saying to Will that one of the funniest things... About, I do a lot of like work researching the right. Pro- professionally. You, yeah. you're, as part of your job, you're I often... I report on them and, yeah... On, watching videos of Milo and the gang. Right, so I was saying to you that, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to a lot of jazz, which... Uh, you know, I've been really immersed in it and it's had the, the extra corollary benefit of replacing the like YouTube suggested videos are no longer sort of Milo and, and like Ezra Levant and now it's like John Coltrane and Coleman <laughs> Hawkins and uh, and that's a nice development. But but anyway, what I was thinking, what I was getting at was that uh, your remark made me laugh because on a lot of the like the most common thing you see on all these right wing uh, like on on the really like extremely online alt-right is that they think everything is communism Mm -hmm. which i guess is a theme that actually goes like further back in the history of the right but no no matter what like the most tepid vanilla liberalism like is just is communist Uh, how how is it because i remember who is that guy on twitter who became briefly notorious because he referred to sex marxists oh it was yeah that was an alberta politics thing and it had to do with like the ndp sex marxist taking over i guess his idea of sex marxism is more and more people having sex anytime there's any sort of equality any liberation that's that's marxism Marxism. well well, I mean, we're really getting away from the film. Well, maybe not we're getting yeah, away from no. it, but it's fun. Um, it's it's a theme that goes back a lot further, I guess. Like, there was a similar response to kind of the sexual revolution in the 1960s when it was happening. 
Um, you know, it was there were there was a certain part of the right that saw this as communism. Um, but then, you know, the New Deal was communism, according to Ayn Rand, who fled, you know, fled the Russian Revolution um, and came to America and then was instantly terrified because the New Deal was the start of <laughs> communism. So it's anything can be communism. It can be you know, kind of people that want, you know, a more equal division of, of stuff and of wealth. Uh, but it can also just be people having too much sex. This is the thing that has always amused me about, like, the far right is that their critique is kind of, like, contradictory uh -huh. just on its face. Like, on the one hand, the left is this heavy-handed, overly bureaucratic thing that wants to control everything and, like, legislate everything. But on the other hand, it's too licentious and it's about, like telling people uh, you could do anything you want and like <laughs> it's too libertarian you know which i just think is really funny anyway we should get back to the well film. i'm excited to know that anything can be communism <laughs> it's, it's liberating in yeah. a way uh so anyway full communism has uh has broke <laughs> <Shut> <laughs> so so uh what what luke claims is not full communism has has broken out and everyone's happy and everyone's riding in their boats and waving from the shore and everyone's feeling pretty good but uh-oh the russian cavalry breaks in mm. uh because because there's there's no way this is gonna last, leading to the famous Odessa step sequence where um, I mean it's 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 breathtaking. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, just a, a crowd of hundreds of people running down these steps, people being trampled. This was an incredibly violent scene for the time. We yeah. see a, a it's pretty. Dis I mean, it's pretty disturbing. Still, yeah, ways, we yeah. see a young boy be trampled. Mm -hmm. the, the most famous part of the scene, I guess, is when there's a woman with a baby carriage who's shot. And then as she shot, the baby carriage behind her rolls down the steps. And this is a scene that has been imitated most famously in The Untouchables, but mm -hmm. in many other movies. The Naked Gun 3, <laughs> I believe. Uh, another great totem of cinema. Maybe this scene would be a good time to talk a little bit about Soviet montage theory. Mm -hmm. Eisenstein was as much a theorist as a filmmaker. He wrote two books, Film Form and The Film Sense, that are still widely studied he famously called montage the nerve of cinema. And his theory was that it's not just the shots themselves, but the way they're assembled that gives cinema both its emotional and its intellectual power. And this is what separates cinema from all other art forms, uh, the theater, music, painting. So we're all familiar with classic Hollywood continuity editing, which is designed to be invisible. But Eisenstein advocated for the revolutionary potential of editing with the juxtaposition of disparate images to create an emotional effect. Right. So we see that most vividly in the Odessa step sequence where you've got the baby carriage, then it cuts to the woman with the glasses. Mm. It's a head on shot of her and she's shocked. And then it cuts to this soldier who's whipping at the camera. Yeah. He's got a bayonet yeah. or something. And, and he's, yeah. And it cuts to the baby carriage that cuts to her and her glasses are broken. And then a little bit later, you see the cannons on the ship as they're about to fire at the Odessa Theater. And then you see the Odessa Theater. Then you see the stone angels, the angel gargoyles on top of the theater. Then you see the theater explode. And then it cuts to the gargoyle lions outside. Right. It's this kind of suggestive, emotional juxtaposition of images. Yeah, so very different from the Hollywood style where you have famously things like the 180 degree rule where, mm -hmm. for example, if somebody was filming us having this conversation, they would do so along a kind of an imagined 180 degree axis, axes between us so that there would be, you know, anybody watching the film, 
you know, me speaking to you and then you replying would be given kind of maximum visual legibility and the visual grammar uh, mm -hmm. of it. Whereas in, you know, montage, it's just, yeah, you know, um, the sensations evoked are evoked more through association than like by establishing like the, the precise geographical relationship between two objects or something. And interestingly, Eisenstein was a divisive filmmaker among the, the Soviet officials at the time. There were those who felt that he was too arty. Mm -hmm. That his films were not legible enough for the common folk, which seems ridiculous. Seems weird watching this, but yeah. um, but I mean that's a point I wanted to make because I mean the filmmakers I know that are most commonly associated with, I suppose what's called Soviet realism, are Eisenstein and Ziga Vertov. Although I don't think Eisenstein really is a, a Soviet realist because you know his films are too stylized. Right. Well, that's kind of the point mm -hmm. I was I was going to make yeah. is that, you know, so if, if you were to look at, you know, I don't know, some garbage inter internet list that would come up if you Googled like the most famous propaganda films of all time or something, you know, you'd have something like this. You'd have probably Vertov's Man with the Movie Camera. You'd have Triumph of the Will, you know, which we talked about um, in the first non-Michael Moore episode of this uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, films like that, which or uh, Olympia, which was Lenny Riefenstahl's film about the Berlin Olympics. Films like that, which... You know, the most famous propaganda movies are the least exemplary of, or like the least representative, rather than the most exemplary and the least representative of what propaganda films are like, because, or most propaganda films, because both the kind of Stalinist uh, propagandists and the Nazis look to Hollywood for their, you know, certainly for their kind of cinematography and, and in thinking about overall film grammar, because the way that Hollywood thinks about film grammar is it aims for maximum legibility, and especially in the, you know, 20s and 30s. Uh, there was a kind of Fordist production process to it. So the director wasn't the most important person at all. You could have a, you could have 10 directors on a film. The director was someone kind of coordinating things on the set often. The producer was the you know, visionary. visionary and the kind of logistician who put it all together because the process, the creative process was much more, um, the mode of production, if we want to use the, uh, was a lot more um, mechanistic. And, and that's what you need to make propaganda, right? You need to be able to make a lot of it and you need to be legible to huge numbers of people that you're trying to brainwash and coerce. So, I don't know, just, it's a, it's a, point worth making anytime you're thinking about a film like this or any any other kind of films that are thought of as kind of the big propaganda films because actually directors like Eisenstein are, are much more technically adept and, and mm -hmm. just kind of avant-garde than uh, a lot of propaganda films would have been. If you want a real propaganda film just look at like one of those weird what's that mystery science theater episode that's like a date with your family oh yeah, yeah. like you know these what kind of mental hygiene yeah these kind of social films. conditioning movies from hollywood in the in the 50s or whatever you know well uh i mean lenny riefenstahl i think was also considered by many to be too arty at yeah. the time a more typical german propaganda movie might have been something like the eternal jew Right, which uh, is certainly legible uh -huh. uh, and, is, and is very artless mm -hmm. and, and is very didactic. Mm -hmm. curiosity 
what was your emotional connection to this movie while watching it? Because as I was watching it, you know, I couldn't connect any of these characters, obviously. Um, maybe it was the time we're living in, but I felt kind of, you know, I kind of <laughs> felt into the revolutionary spirit of it, you know. I, and I, I liked that the movie's politics had no nuance. I like that yeah. the bad guys are bad. Right, right. Folks, in, in the past 18 months, Will has gone from like, you know, I guess I like Bernie, but Hillary's probably the more electable candidate <laughs> come November to to this this uh, this Marxist film from the 20s really resonated with me in the time we're living in, yeah, which is yeah. great. But uh, that's the influence of Michael Moore hard at work. It was watching all those Michael Moore films. That, um, well, I saw but, all those Michael Moore movies and I realized, geez, this isn't going to work. Yeah, you, you thought there's got to be a better way. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, it's a very it's a very powerful idea. Yeah. An idea that I think becomes more and more potent among larger and larger numbers of people when particularly economic divisions, class divisions become more and more exaggerated. So people uh, people start to work for larger and larger companies where the management is more and more distant and uh, more and more, you know, removed from their uh, you know, like if you're a tech worker say today and you work at like you know, Facebook or something, you might be working like 90 hours a week for just like terrible wages. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's doing great. And so are all his like lieutenants. And I don't know, the idea of uh, just kind of a a large mass of people that share common interests is, is a very revolutionary idea and uh, and a powerful one too. All right. Well, I love my job and I uh, would love <laughs> to get my contract renewed. You're not so. going to topple the bourgeoisie. <laughs> this movie was a success. It was actually a, a greater success when the score that we heard, the Edmund Meisel score, was added to it later. Uh, it's a score that was lost for over 50 years but was and was only recently restored to the movie it's a very rousing mm-hmm. you know exciting score well and that's refreshing to see because as i was saying to you uh, off mic occasionally you, you get a you know a, a new version of of one of these old films um i had an experience recently trying to watch man with the a man with a movie camera and it it had some kind of like like this kind of synthy soundtrack or i tried to watch um you know maya darren's meshes of the afternoon yeah um, I tried to watch that and it had some kind of like, yeah, again, like electronic sort of soundtrack. That or might actually and be its original soundtrack. I, I know that it does have kind of a weird like avant-garde soundtrack, but this definitely was not okay. the original soundtrack. This was like, I feel like this was maybe a play on the original soundtrack, okay. which made it worse. You know, so yeah, that, that kind of uh, that kind of bugs me when, when they do that with old movies. But I understand that when this soundtrack was rediscovered, people were very surprised because for... 70 years people have been listening to this movie with sort of dirge-like soundtracks and then they got this and they were like oh this is an action movie right right and it's yeah i mean it's very uh, it's very exciting it's a it's a trim 70 minutes um and it's exciting from start to finish uh it it could easily have been like the longest film we've ever watched for this podcast which was uh the birth of a nation which was over three hours yes um, which and which I think we agreed has maybe like a good hour in it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the rest of it's just kind of take it or leave it. So after this movie, Eisenstein made October Ten Days That Shook the World about the October Revolution, which is considered a classic now, but was not a success at the time. Mm-hmm. It was criticized in some quarters in Russia for excessive formalism. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what it was criticized for. <laughs> but but that was okay because uh, Eisenstein was on his way to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He earned powerful advocates in such filmmakers as Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin, uh, who were great friends and fans and of Chaplin his. Chaplin called Potemkin his favorite film. Is yes, that right? yeah. yes. 
Eisenstein got a contract with Paramount, but it didn't work out. He had to come back to Russia with his tail between his legs. He was regarded with some suspicion for the rest of his career uh, for having been tempted by uh, the capitalist over <laughs> by the capitalist pigs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had a comeback in the late '30s when he made a film called Alexander Nevsky, which right. I saw recently and is quite interesting mm-hmm. because it's a historical epic about where the Germans were going to invade Russia and the heroic Alexander Nevsky warded them off. And basically, this was a film that was commissioned kind of to get the drumbeat going for the inevitable war that was going right. to happen with Germany. Right. Uh, and his later films are, you know, maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but they seem to be more about kind of the heroic historic figure, Ivan the Terrible, Alexander Nevsky, right. than, than about the masses. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess we haven't really talked about what we want to do next week uh, or, you know, in two weeks time, whenever we do the next episode. I suppose, um, you know, we kind of did this film because we had a run of a lot of silly. And Our last episode was Steven Seagal. After you watch too many Tim Allen and Steven Seagal yeah. things, you get a stomach ache. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think as we've said on the podcast before, before we had the podcast, the thing you and I used to do was just watch good movies. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the yes. podcast takes up a lot of our hangout time because we end up having to watch, like sit through like three and a half hour Christopher Nolan movies and like Tim Allen's sitcom and things like that. And so sometimes it's nice to just watch something beautiful yeah. for a change. There's not enough beauty in the world. There's, there's too much, uh, there's too much Twitter and, uh, and there's too much being extremely online and there's too many bad movies and there's not enough beauty. So it's nice to watch a, a film like this for a change. It's crazy to think there was once a time I didn't know who Joanne Reed was. Ugh. I, you know, I wish like Louise Men should remained like a you know a, a brief uh, flicker in like British politics as a conservative backbencher, and she'd never made the journey to become a leading conspiracy theorist in America. I also wish just Twitter had never been invented. Um, so I'm not sure what we're gonna watch next time. We might get to something. You know, we go back to something silly, or we might watch another serious film. I'm not sure. We've got to uh, we've got to honor our uh, our pledge to. Uh, finish the Canada 150 spectacular oh, yeah, on God. our great country. Yeah. Well, uh, the world probably won't be here next time because the <laughs> nuclear war with North Korea will have obliterated us all. But I'm glad we went down swinging. I'm glad we died as we lived making a podcast. About Michael Moore. Yeah. Now watch this drive. We'll meet again Don't know where don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. So will you please say hello to the folks that I know, tell them I won't be long, they'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song, we meet again, don't know where. Don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.